I speak to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I imagine that most of us have watched the political debates this last week. Some of us may have even listened to the debates of our local candidates in anticipation of one of the great freedoms of our country, the right to vote. And we're likely all over the map in terms of why and how we're going to vote. For some of us, it's clear, and we know exactly who and what we want to vote for. For others, we are voting preventatively, voting for, to make sure that the person or party that we don't want isn't going to be elected. And for others, we're voting for a party that won't likely form government, and so our vote is for some principle or long-term possibility. And for some of us, the political debate is about one or two issues, and we really don't care about any of the other issues. And then some of us don't think it really is going to make any difference, so why bother? So regardless of where you are, each of the candidates wants to convince you that they are the greatest and that their party is the best. And this aggrandizement is expected and has become naturalized in our political process and, ironically, sometimes in our religious process. Perhaps that's why politics and religion are things we tend to avoid in ordinary discussion. And even as each candidate seeks to convince us that they are the greatest, many of us have already made up our minds. And so as we listen to the other candidates and their spin and image, we tend to only hear something akin to blah, 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 blah. Or we internally or externally regurgitate the contrary arguments. And often when a candidate feels threatened or the polls don't reflect that their spin is working, the verbiage becomes personal and they attack one another. And in fact, sometimes it feels more like a sporting event than a debate about what kind of leadership we want and need. And most of us think we make an informed intellectual choice. But research indicates that our political choices tend to be based on emotional responses that are then rationalized. And because they are, many aspects of the political process become focused on image and spin rather than principle, policy, and performance. And it is this kind of emotionally and mentally charged situation that our gospel text paints in this story of Jesus and his disciples. The reality is that Jesus is talking about his impending arrest and crucifixion because the main political principles and expectations in Jesus' time were all about power over. And his subversive message threatened that power. Their political reality in the culture was that might makes right. And however, Jesus' message was that less is more. An upside-down kingdom conveying that the kingdom of God challenges the prevailing social order. The values of the kingdom he spoke about stand in an inverse relationship to the values of the world. The disciples couldn't comprehend this, and the power brokers assumed it was a threat to their church and their kingdom, and so they plotted to murder Jesus. And avoidantly confused about what's going on, the disciples hold their own debate about who is the greatest. 
And then this upside-down message from Jesus. Instead of a king at the top, it is a child at the top. Instead of just power over, it becomes power with. Imagine if in the middle of one of our federal political debates, one of the candidates just stopped and invited a child from the audience to come forward, gently made that child feel at ease and said, this process isn't about which one of us is the best. It's about this child and perhaps the child in each one of us. Or if one of the candidates said, what are we doing? Are these arguments about who's the best and the greatest what it's all about? Or is it about this child as a symbol of the dependence we all have on one another and perhaps on something that is greater than us? What if we served that? How do we as individuals become less about our image and spin and serve not just the dependence of this child, but also recognize our humble, own dependence and vulnerability. Now, if one of the candidates actually did this, it would likely be political and personal suicide, as it was for Jesus. The news report might read, The silence in the room was deafening. The candidates were arguing about who was the greatest, trying to get our vote. And then one candidate just abandoned the argument and, cradling a child from the audience, faced the other candidates and the crowd and said, so we all want first place and you want a winner. What if we all took the last place and became a servant to all? And then he placed the child in the middle of the room and said, if we all would take care of the needs of this child and our own inner child, perhaps we could rise above all these arguments about who's the best, who's right, and become loving action in the world might we actually realize that we are dependent on one another and dependent on some higher reality or principle. Let's work together to become that loving action in the world, for this is what we are called to be. Now, in our world, this would be political suicide or dismissed as an impossible dream or dismissed as another photo op. But for Jesus, this was more than just a wistful, imaginative dream. And our other text reflects this as an actual possibility. They invite us to nurture wisdom. Heal our own inner child, and you will nurture wisdom. James tells us what this might look like. He says, But the wisdom from above is first, listen to these words, pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy, and a harvest of decency and integrity is sown in peace for those who make peace. He goes on, those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and you do not have it, and so you commit literal or figurative murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, and so you engage in disputes and conflicts. I want to focus on cravings that are at war within you. 
Occasionally, as some of you know, I have had the courts send people to me because of charges relating to road rage and anger management. And they're forced to come to see me. They don't come because they want to. And initially, we don't talk about anger. We spend a lot of time talking about what it was like to be forced to come and see me as a condition of a lesser charge or getting their driving privileges back. And inevitably, as we begin to build trust, we would uncover some form of over-the-top or inappropriate parental or adult abuse in their childhood that repeated itself as the adult later fought to get that power for themselves. And we do need to be empowered. But for most of them, they thought I was going to teach them how not to be angry. And often they were surprised that I suggested that they needed to stay angry, but in a new way. And I would invite them to bring that anger into the room in one hand, but then along with that, seek to hold all the other available emotions to them in the other hand and have them speak to one another in integrity of unity, of emotional reality. They had never been taught that even their anger could be held in a loving, kind way. And so now as adults, they were going to be in charge and often perpetuate that same abuse on their children or anyone else that triggered their childhood fear and anxiety about authority. Remember, biblically, the command is, do not be angry. It's be angry, but don't sin. Go ahead and be angry. There are things to be angry about. But don't use your anger as a fuel for revenge. Don't become your anger. Don't let it possess you. Don't see every authority as an affront to your freedom. Don't get anger that kind of foothold in your life. Bring the other emotions to bear on the relationship. And in this way, even love those you normally would think are your enemies. That authoritarian, abusive adult who hurt you as a child now has become a face-saving reality or reactivity to any authority as an adult to protect that inner child. And you now tend to defend yourself or define yourself by any authority that you oppose. Perhaps you only feel alive when you have something to oppose. And you say, I was vulnerable as a child, but I'm not now. And so all that fear of authority that you couldn't express or acknowledge as a child becomes focused on an unknown person whose car made you put on your brakes. Somewhat understandable, but certainly not life-giving. And I notice this within myself. Why do I drive more courteously when I'm wearing my collar? A well-known trauma doctor, Gabor Matei, suggests that surface anger, like road rage, is usually a reflection of inner trauma, often childhood trauma. This inner trauma, what James called cravings, that are at war within yourself, but we transfer them to an enemy outside of us and pour all those unfulfilled cravings onto that scapegoat. I'm banging on the side of an ambulance at a hospital because I will never again allow some authority figure to control my life. I'm actually a freedom fighter. That's not freedom. It's captivity to childhood trauma, to cravings that are at war within me. James and Jesus' kind of wisdom 
might move us, as Henri Nouwen puts it, from competition to compassion. And Nouwen says, in competition, we look at those little wee things in which, that make us different, and we make them everything. In compassion, we look at those ways in which we're all the same. And that movement is about how we use power. Margaret Stortz, in her book, Pastor Power, outlines three kinds of power. First of all, she says, power over. Traditional, male-dominated, top-down power. Let me ask, did you ever get closer to someone because you proved you were right and they were wrong? Not likely. There are times when this power over is needed, but there is a strong temptation then to use it all the time, by force, power over. The second kind of power she characterized is power within, charismatic power, power of the personality. And some people just have that presence that you're attracted to. And there's nothing wrong with it, but it's temptation. It very easily becomes narcissistic or requires everyone around it to sustain that image. And then there is power with, collaborative power. Power with is always relational power. And it's not that we should never use power over or power with. But wisdom tells us that the ultimate goal is to use and work within our communities with power with, rather than power within or power over, collaborative power. And ultimately, power with is the longing of the kingdom of God, serving. There may be times for power over Jesus and the money changers and even his interactions with the people who thought they knew how to do it right the scribes and the Pharisees. And there is nothing wrong inherently with power within, charismatic power. Jesus had plenty of that. But power over and power within always have an ego temptation, a temptation connected to our cravings at war within our hearts. And if relied on, they always lapse into conflict, disputes, and arguments about who's the greatest. Power with requires the kind of wisdom that James and Jesus are suggesting are ultimate. And so loving action invites us to seek to encourage power with as much as we can and avoid the ego temptations in those places in our broken humanity where we have to use power over and power within. And frankly, for me, this is what has attracted me to all saints and the Anglican Church here in Vernon, this movement from competition to compassion. And I see it rising all over, even though occasionally we see power over and power within, sometimes appropriately used, sometimes not. In our humanity, we may be elected to some form of leadership, even government. But true wisdom holds that we are first elected to loving action in the world. And this, my friends, is true wisdom. Amen.